Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Welcome to The Spiritual Forum, everyone. I'm so glad you're here. Glad you're here listening to this wonderful podcast. I've got a great guest today, and I think you're going to find this is a message of hope and inspiration and kind of give us some thoughts on how to live our lives. But I do want to remind everybody that that if you can, if you feel moved to donate, that's the only way that this podcast is supported. You can do that on thespiritualform.org, and I really, really appreciate those who do donate. And if you got if you're out there living a spiritual life, I want to make sure that you know that if you want to be on this podcast and tell your story, you do not have to be an author or any having done anything amazing. If you're out in the world being being uh, love in action, wisdom in action, and you have a wonderful spiritual awakening story, email me at revcarolsaunders at gmail.com and, and we can see if you you might fit to be a guest. So let me introduce you to today's guest. Mark Matusik is a best-selling author of seven books. He's also a teacher and speaker whose work focuses on personal awakening and creative excellence through transformational writing and self-inquiry. Mark's work has appeared in numerous anthologies and publications, including The New Yorker, Oprah Magazine, Tricycle, Good Housekeeping, and Harper's Bazaar. He brings over three decades of experience as a memoirist, editor, interviewer, survivor, activist, and spiritual seeker to his penetrating and thought-provoking work with students. Today, we're going to be focusing on his most recently published book, or <laughs> the, re- the recently published book, When You're Falling, Dive. And this book examines the phenomenon, why do some people blossom through adversity while others fall apart? And the book also shows how disasters can be used to awaken and transform us. And I think that's a topic that we're all really interested in. So welcome, Mark. Glad to have you with me. Thanks, Carol. It's really good to be here. So I did, as I mentioned before we got on, I did read most of your book. I, I need to show you. It's It's been chewed on by my dog. <laughs> 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 but it's it has lots of, lots of underlining, but it's been well-worn. So we're, we're going to talk to Mark about his his life and his book and about this whole idea of blossoming through adversity. But before we get into that, Mark, I'd like you to give us your own story about how you've, you know, we can't hear your whole life, (laughs) but a summary of of your your spiritual journey and how you've gotten to where you are. Yes, thanks, Carol. Well, I've I've been a seeker since I was a very young kid. Uh, I grew up in a house where there was a lot of difficulty, trauma, abandonment, uh, violence, and there was no one around for guidance or to give me the kind of the kind of wisdom that a, a, a boy needs to find his way through a lot of pain and loss. So I turned inward at a very young age. I started writing at a very young age and asking myself the kinds of questions seekers ask ourselves. You know, what is, what's going on here? Why is everyone in pain? You know, why does everything end? You know, those kinds of questions I started to ask at a when I was seven or eight years old and I've been keeping a journal since then and so that is the 
earliest inklings of my spiritual journey, then cut to my late uh, 20s when I was an editor in New York City. I was climbing the publishing ladder and trying, you know, trying to make it in the world. And I had a life and death situation that put me really in, in touch with my mortality. There was, there was a chance that I was not going to be around for long. And that reawakened the, the spiritual seeker in me. I quit my job. I went to India. I started looking for teachers. And I spent the next 10 years of my life as a kind of Dharma bum uh, without a permanent address, just looking for wisdom wherever I could find it. And that, I feel, began my real work. Uh, my writing changed after that. Uh, my teaching changed after that. Uh, and I realized that the questions that had been living in me since I was a little boy that I thought made me strange, uh, there was something wrong with me, why am I never quite at ease, are the, are the kinds of questions that spiritual seekers ask themselves all the time. So I realized that I had a tribe that I was, in fact, I, I had a tribe. There was nothing wrong with me. This is These were kind of the uh, the credentials for entering this club of people interested in getting to the truth of who we are, understanding reality and our existence, and going to a deeper level of self-awareness. And I think it's interesting that there are those of us who ask those really deep questions. And I think it seems to me that there's a pattern that we're kind of plopped into families that don't do that. <laughs> You know, so like, so our first experiences, we're asking these questions like, who am I? What is life about? What is this thing called God? Or why do we die? That that little, as little children, we're asking these questions, but everyone around us doesn't think that way at all. So our, our first, our first thought is that we don't fit in. Exactly. And I, I do think that the necessity that comes from that, from not having people around us to answer our questions, breeds the kind of inventive creative uh, seeking that that people you know look for in their lives when they when they haven't been supported in that area and so so I think coming from a, a, a difficult background uh, is actually it can be a great gift not yes. only for a seeker but also for a memoir writer in, in, in fact for me it was the greatest gift that I had this crazy childhood because it's such wonderful material uh, and it it helped it has helped me a lot in in Communicating with people who, who don't, they don't want to hear the, the Pollyanna story. They want to hear the truth of how hard it, it can be to be alive uh, as a child. And in, in, when, when you're surrounded with a lot of, of, of darkness and, and, and difficulty, I think that has given me a bridge to my readers. The fact that I, I know what that feels like. That's where I come from. It's where I live, you could say. And a lot of my teaching and my writing comes from that place. So do you write memoirs? Do people hire you to write their own memoir? Well, that has happened in the past. Uh, I don't do that anymore. Okay. Uh, I've written my own. I've written two memoirs of my own. Okay. And all of my books have an autobiographical element to them. I want to be the guide through whatever topic I'm I'm writing about. So for example, I wrote a book called Ethical Wisdom uh, about uh, about human morality and the evolution of human morality and what makes us good. And and I am the guide throughout that book because for me that was a pressing question. Uh, I had I had a mother, for example. We grew up with a lot of uh, poverty in our in our lives, and my mother at one point when I was a young boy uh, was working at a department store, and she stole something that oh. I wanted for Christmas. Oh, and 
realizing that she had done that for me because we couldn't afford it. It was a winter coat. Uh, was very you know devastating for me you know to to realize that your parent your parent could be a thief but it was a thief in the way that Les, Les Miserables is a thief. I was going to say Jean Valjean. <laughs> it's like Jean Valjean. It's like Jean Valjean and she so she took this you know this little probably probably a $25 coat for me it meant everything but that woke up this question of what is good what is honest how can my mother do something like that and that became the engine of that book, uh, Ethical Wisdom, for example. So there's always an autobiographical element to what I do. Interesting. Interesting. So this book, When You're Falling Dive, I was very, very, very intrigued by the title. Because <laughs> it's definitely about don't resist, <laughs> you know, open your palms and just just fall. What caused you to write this book? This when my When I was 20 years old, my oldest sister... Uh, came to me in very bad shape. She had been quite depressed uh, and she was going through a, a terribly hard time. And she asked me a question that I never forgot. She said, how do you do it? And I said, how do you do what, Marsha? She said, how do you live? And two weeks later, she killed herself. Oh my so goodness. That became for me a, a, a mantra in my life. How do you live? How do you live? After I came through the worst of my own health crisis, I realized I wanted to address that question head on and talk to people who were master survivors in various different circumstances and say, how did you do it? What is it that separates the uh, the person who sits down and gives up and the person who's able to stand up and move into the unknown? And that that is the theme of the book. And that's the question that I was exploring, not only for myself, but for, for readers. I wanted to create a book for people in all different walks of life who come up against that inevitable to be or not to be moment and say, how do I move through this? So that was the reason for, for writing the book. I wanted it to be the kind of book people put on their nightstand that they could pick up in the middle of the night when they're having a really hard time. And so that's why it's written in you know short, uh, short stories. And it has helped quite a lot of people, I'm very, very happy to say. I love that that about the book that it's it's the chapters are short and it's a little a story of each chapter well, almost each chapter is a story about a different person and uh, here's just a summary that so there's people who've lost loved ones several loved ones somebody uh, who was paralyzed in a body surfing accident somebody who experienced a motorcycle accident a a slave in Sudan a Pakistani refugee, an incest survivor. It's, it's a real, real, real broad, and that doesn't even cover it. That's, that's a broad, broad example of people who have been through uh, not just adversity, but just enormous suffering. And and what's <laughs> the common theme, the common thread is what it is that moved them through that as, and not just survivors, but they're, they all seem to be kind of thrivers, I think. That was my point. I wanted, there's something called viriditas that Hildegard of Bing in the 13th century German mystic uh, talked about. Viriditas is that green force in us, that vitality, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower, like Dylan Thomas said. Uh, and that force is in all of us, but it's stronger in some people than others. And I wanted to talk to people in whom it was a very strong force, that resilience was particularly uh, powerful. Uh, and so that's why they are thrivers. And, and they're, but they're, they're not thrivers with rose colored glasses. You know, they're very honest and very 
down to earth about the the difficulties that go that keep going on. It's not as if we get to a point where everything's okay. You know, we come through the worst and then we're okay for a while and then something else comes up. So how do we meet that with grace? How do we meet that with surrender? How do we meet it with curiosity? That's mm-hmm. another, that was a major difference between people who thrive and don't, I discovered doing this research, was curiosity about, about what's coming and gratitude for the day. And that's something that can be hard to communicate to people who haven't been through hard times. Being grateful just to get up in the morning, just to be able to stand up on your own two legs. I was listening the other day to an interview with the wonderful author named Rachel Naomi Remen, whose work you may know. And Rachel was talking about being an octogenarian and the fact that she's, when she stands up in the morning, gets out of bed and can stand up, it's a good day. And this is a woman who she's a, she's a, a cancer doctor. She's a best-selling author. She's, in, she's internationally renowned. And all she needs is to be able to stand up on her own two legs and not be in pain to feel like uh, it's a good day. And so it's that kind of baseline gratitude just to be here and for the experience of being alive, to have the opportunity to to be alive. Uh, It sounds corny, but it's not it's not Pollyanna. It's it's the real, true lived experience of people who have been through the worst. Yeah, I think I mean, I, I don't know that I could pick a favorite person from your book, but this one person, I've got quotes from a few of them, but this was somebody who was diagnosed with cancer. His name was Jim Curtin or Curtin. And he says, I began to realize that if life is actually a gift, then the right response is thank you. God said my job was joy, but joy is not just about being happy. Joy is a rigorous spiritual practice of saying yes to life on life's terms. Exactly. Which is that reality you're talking about. It's not just saying yes when, you know, good things happen and yes when everybody's getting along and yes when I have a job and yes when my health is good on life's terms. That that's I mean that's a that's a rigorous spiritual practice of saying yes to life on life's terms. For all of us, don't you find? Uh, Yeah. Joy is a choice, it's an orientation. It doesn't mean you're cheerful all the time. It doesn't mean you walk around in bliss. It doesn't mean you're immune or impervious to pain. It means that you're choosing again and again to have joy, which is for me a combination of gratitude and awareness of spirit. Those are I the love things, that. Those are the things that 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 create joy. Joy isn't even happiness in the kind of conventional sense. You know, Mother Teresa used to talk about doing small things with great love and that she could hold a dying infant in her arms and see Christ in his distressing disguise and feel joy at having the opportunity to help and to give love. That's the kind of joy I'm talking about. It's the gratitude for being here, being able to to help other people and to have the opportunity to, to awaken. That's joy. That's That's the essence of it. Yeah. So what do you think it is? Why is it that some of us make this choice and others don't? Do you have any insight into that? I have I have I have a few insights. And because it's a combination, it's complex like everything else in life. Uh, it, it has to do with your genes. You know, some people are born with uh, a higher level of subject what they call subjective well-being. You know, we all have a median place, an idling place. Some people are more cheerful, some people are more pessimistic. So it has to do with that, what you get in terms of your DNA. 
Uh, it has to do with how you were brought up, uh, being brought up uh, spoiled, for example, kids who get everything that they that they want, who are not, who are entitled, who are not taught to appreciate their lives. That's a huge handicap, mm-hmm. particularly when things start to hit the fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that you know and the people you come into contact with, I, I'm incredibly grateful that at almost every um, crossroads in my life, I've met someone who became a teacher for me. And it's partly because I was looking for it. And that's another thing that distinguishes a seeker. Our eyes are open. We're looking for the next bit of insight, the next bit of wisdom, uh, but we can't uh, do it alone. So recognizing that you need a tribe, you need teachers. There are times when you need to defer to authorities, people uh, who know more than you. That's another big part of how we grow on the spiritual path. And it's also creativity, Being looking at life through creative eyes uh, gives you an enormous amount of resilience because artists, the ultimate creators, are uh, people who are always beginning again. You know, when an artist looks at the looks at uh, a situation, they're not bringing the past with them; they're meeting it fresh, and that's mm-hmm. something that survivors also have to do have to have the willingness to meet things fresh on their own terms, as you were saying earlier. Another huge thing, Carol, is trying people who are trying to get things to be the way they were before whatever crisis hit are are in at a serious disadvantage. It will never be the way it was, and the desire to swim backwards against the current is it's exhausting and it's futile. So, moving toward the unknown, the willingness to move into the what we don't yet know, uh, to appreciate mystery which a lot of folks are not comfortable with. Most most folks are looking for security. Yeah, what uh, what's known, what what I can what's predictable. What's predictable, <laughs> what seems what's safe. Good, and what's yes, exactly, what keeps me safe and I'm doing triple quotes with my with my fingers <laughs> because there's no such thing. Right. But the beauty of going through a big loss is that you get your old ideas of security are 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 destroyed and you realize you've been in a kind of illusion, a kind of trance. Of, of identifying with this or that. But then when this or that are taken away from you, you have you can do one of two things. You can, as I said, sit down and give up and say it all it all stinks now because it's all that what I had is gone. Or you can say, what's possible now? Now that I'm free of that, mm. what can what can happen? It's it's a completely different orientation. It's a spiritual orientation, a creative orientation. Oh, definitely. And I think for some reason, I think our, our ego traps us into thinking of being a vic- there's some power in being a victim or something. <laughs> like people will gather around me and feel sorry for me and that, that somehow makes me feel better, but it's such an illusion. It's so disempowering. There's nothing more disempowering than, than being a, a victim. And when people are feeling sorry for us, pity is not empowering. Pity also is, is, is disempowering. There, there's no... There's nothing. Um, there's nothing beneficial psychologically or spiritually about the victim position. Even, even excuse me, even if we've been victimized, and uh, that's what I, I say. People, can, you can be victimized. Bad things happen. Terrible things can happen. That doesn't mean you have to live as a victim. That's mm-hmm. a very different thing. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, because you have to acknowledge something. Something bad has happened. I mean, it's not like we're gonna, like you said, Pollyanna. I'm not gonna say, oh, <laughs> that I've got a, I've got a sword in my side, but it's okay. No, it's not okay. But I'm. It, what am I gonna do with it? 
So I said I can't find a favorite one in your book, but I really, really, really liked Francis from Sudan. I mean, I was so taken by this young man. So just as a quick story, you could probably take, tell it better than me, but he, he was young and he was, he was abducted and, and drawn into slavery for something like 10 years. I may have the details wrong. And he eventually ended up getting out and coming to America. But he said this, and I think this is so powerful. They can never steal your idea of who you are. They can never take control of your mind. They can never take away your self-love. If you're alive in this world, you must fight, but never with a sword. But this, idea, I mean, I thought that was so powerful. I've always said this. I haven't been in a situation like this. But bless his heart. He's really right. No matter how bad things get, no matter how enslaved you are, no matter how harmed you are, no matter how crushed your body is, no one can steal your idea of who you are. No. Yeah. No one can take control of your mind. And, and your mind is the one that chooses who are you going to be in this moment. And they never take away your self-love. I just thought that was so beautiful. He's a beautiful human being. I mean, this is a guy who was kidnapped when he was seven years old. He and his sisters were in the marketplace near their farm, a wealthy, you know, relatively wealthy family selling their goods in the marketplace. And the uh, marauders came in, they kidnapped him, put him on their horse. And for the next 10 years, he lived in a pigsty. He was kept as an animal by his captors. The children were of the house were abusive to him. So he had it very, very hard. And he had to, as a Christian, he had to go to the heart of his own faith and say, what does this really mean? And what he realized is what many survivors realize is that they can take everything away from you but your own mind. Mm -hmm. That except for very rare cases of extreme affliction where you're in enormous pain and your mind is, is out of control, uh, we always have a choice. You know, Viktor Frankl, the wonderful author and, and uh, of Man's Search for Meaning, survivor of the Holocaust, he called it the last of the human freedoms. It's the ability to choose our way in any given set of circumstances. That is the last of the human freedoms. Everything else can be taken away. And when you get that, it does give you something to hold on to. Uh, and you realize that you can't, you're not, you're not completely um, beyond repair. I mean, we're so powerful, really. I mean, that, that is to be able to, to know that no one can take my mind. And that's where my power is completely, 100%. And, you know, it it's, may seem trite when you say no one can really harm you. Well, they may they can harm you, but they can't, take, they can't take away, you know, they really can't take away your mind. They can't take away your dignity unless you give it to them. They can't take away your self-love unless you give it to them. Uh, they can harm your body. They can yeah. lock you up. They can take away your external freedoms, but that essential human freedom of being able to choose our responses is our ace in the hole. It's it's really our salvation in a dimension where we have so little control over what happens to us. Mm -hmm. So how do we move through this uncertain world where there's so much danger, so much that particularly today, it's getting more and more intense. How do we do that with a modicum of of uh, equanimity uh, and, and a modicum of, of, of balance. And the way we do it is by recognizing that whatever happens to us, we can choose how we, how we are going to respond to it. Are we going to react? Are we going to call ourselves victims? Are we going to just um, go into self-pity? 
or are we going to choose a different kind of response? Yeah, you have a whole chapter on Byron Katie. I love that chapter. I love Byron Katie's work. It's so powerful. It's it's simple. It's not easy, but it's it's simple. <laughs> Those four questions, and I've even taught classes on, on her book um, and her methodology. And she's so clear. She's so clear, and that our suffering is our thoughts. Our suffering is you know our, our mind, and it's also a teaching. One of my ordinations is unity. I don't know if you're familiar with unity at all, but that's a definitely a a fundamental teaching of of unity. I mean, I don't tell people that we. Some people may think we create our world, we create our reality. I don't say that. I say we create our experience of reality. Right. You know, it's like some people think whatever's happening, I made happen. I, I think that just is too much, too hard for people, especially when they've been in abuse and trauma and all of that. But what we do with it, what, how we experience it is 100% our choice. Yes. Yeah. And Byron Katie, bless her heart, that, that, that you know, those, is it true? <laughs> is it true? Is it true? Are you sure it's true? And then turn it around. And then and, turn it around. That's yeah. the mind blower with the work uh, is when you, you realize your thoughts are so incorrect yeah. and so arbitrary that when you turn them around, the opposite is very often as true as the thing that you're telling yourself. Yes, yes. And then she has you find examples. So if it, people are listening that don't know the work of Byron Katie, I, I suggest you you you've pick up her her book or uh, watch a YouTube video. But an example of turning it around would be something like having a thought like, nobody likes me or they never call me or my son hates me or something like that. And then you're so, you're so ingrained in that thought, like your whole life is grounded in these beliefs, you know, and then the turnaround is like, my son doesn't hate me or I hate my son. <laughs> right. Or I, or, I, or I don't call anyone. I don't call anyone. Exactly. Yeah, I know. I know. All of those, you could, you could turn them all around. And, and then you look for examples of how the turnaround is, is true, at least three examples of how the turnaround is true. And it just kind of cuts through, cuts through how our, we let our beliefs cause our suffering. Yes. I love what Katie says. She says the mind is like a child. It believes what we tell it until we question our thoughts. The mind is extremely impressionable and gullible. We can just look at what people tell themselves. Look at the things that people can believe. It's extraordinary. And it's because the mind is so pliable and it's so, it, it, it can be so childish. Uh, and until we question the thoughts, they just, they go on automatic and it becomes our conditioned responses. It becomes our way of seeing and living. Yeah, and I think we see uh, others stuck in this, but I mean, everything we get from the news is propaganda. <laughs> right. Every everything, all of it, even the people we like, even the people that we believe, <laughs> it's all it's all just stuff that our mind. It is amazing how the human mind just absorbs stuff without questioning. Yeah, yeah, we're kind of designed that way. So I'm wondering if you might want to share a few of this the stories that are in your book that you particularly like that whoever's listening could couldn't be inspired by? Oh, sure. Well, I, I talked to so many fascinating people. There's an interview with uh, Joan Didion uh, in which uh, she talks about losing her husband uh, suddenly uh, and the kind of magical thinking that happens. She couldn't take his shoes uh, off the doorstep for a year after he died in case he came home and he would need them. You know, the speaking of the mind's gullibility. So she talks about magical thinking in a way that I thought was really fascinating. 
I spoke to a woman named Maria Houston who wrote a book called Hannah's Gift about her three-year-old daughter dying of cancer and how her young daughter became her teacher before she died. And Maria said a lot of very profound things. One thing she talked about was how grief is a is a force. It comes from the same root as gravity. Uh, and we can use grief for our own awakening, our own transformation. It doesn't, it's not just a thing that's kind of weighing us down and, 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 and an enemy. Grief can actually become an ally when we use it to awaken, to ask ourselves, where am I over? Where am I attached? Uh, where, uh, what lies am I telling myself? How do I want to live differently? But the most powerful thing Maria said to me is no matter what's happening in your life, good, bad, otherwise, something else is also true. So, mm. and this is, this is so helpful in those moments when you're in the corner, when your back, back's against the wall and you feel like this is it because everything gets very narrow, you know, and you feel like, oh, all of my choices have been taken away. In fact, no, no matter what's happening, something else is also true. For example, in her situation where she felt like the worst was happening, and of course she wouldn't have chosen that path or losing her daughter, uh, she also was able to write a book that has helped thousands and thousands of people from that experience. It also helped her to get out of a marriage that was very abusive. So other things came out of this tragedy. Uh, so something else is also true. I, I love that. And I use it all the time in my own life. I like that too. Something else is also true. I I have a lot of grief happening in my own family right now. We've had we've had a lot of loss in my family. And um, most recently, my brother died, and I've had a niece die, and my father die within the last two years. But the, the grieving parents and the grieving wife, it seems just overwhelming. But this idea that something else is also true, it kind of gives a little opening in the, in the psyche to explore a little bit. And then I think about smaller things. For example, this is not compared to grief, but for example, <laughs> my my middle daughter was married on our property in 2019, and the only prayer that I had that I had people pray for is for good weather. <laughs> I mean, good weather because it was going to be outdoors, and we've been working on you know it, it being beautiful and everything. And of course, I've done probably a hundred weddings. We have good weather for every wedding, but we didn't have good weather for my daughter's wedding, and it poured. It, and, you know, we could have made that into, and people still do that. Oh, it's, it's so sad that it rained. I'm so sorry that, I'm sorry this happened. I'm sorry. You know, there were, there were many disasters, not just the rain. But my daughter and I were just talking about it two days ago. We're like, oh my gosh, you know, it, it was, I mean, it just was actually perfect. It, you know, it, cause, cause, you know, we could have, we could have really stuck on that, but something else was also happening. And there was kind of the fun of the craziness of it. And, and yeah. there's some, there's sun somewhere else. And maybe somebody else needed this rain, you know, you know, I'm just sitting here focused on my world, my life, I want sun, but maybe yeah. somebody else was praying really for rain. And so there's something else always happening. And that's that choice. That's that choice. It's like, you know, the disastrous wedding <laughs> or the, or the most fun one. <laughs> Exactly. And you had experiences that day you wouldn't have had otherwise. I'm, oh sure, my gosh. I'm sure there was humor. Oh, it's hilarious. I'm sure there was vulnerability. There were people that, you know, there's a way that people were, you know, feeling oh. for you in that day. That there's mud everywhere. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, what was really interesting is 
afterwards, after the, the ceremony, the, the rain kind of died down and they were able to get these pictures outside. And there was something so magical about the rain and the colors of the leaves and the 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 drips. There's something very magical about why those pictures turned out. And it wouldn't have been the same in the sun. Anyway, I'm going too far into my own stuff. But it's a smaller way of looking at something else is also happening. You don't always have to be in these horrible suffering situations to look for something that's that uh, that picks you up and has you look for the good. No, the, the practice is to realize in every moment right now while we're speaking, uh, our minds are creating an experience. Our minds are creating our experience of reality, as you put it. That's not what's actually happening. And knowing that gives you wiggle room. You don't get backed in the corner in quite the same way. You recognize I'm creating this. You know, mm -hmm. what 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 is another way of looking at it? What would Byron Katie say about this? You know, what are the different kinds of truth that I can look at in this moment? And particularly when when times are hard, that is a life-saving realization. Mm -hmm. See that this isn't the this isn't the only way to to meet this adversity. That one can meet it with with creativity. One can meet it with possibility, uh, even in the midst of grieving. That we can have other experiences. Grief isn't monolithic either. In moments of grief, you can have intimacy that you never imagined. Mm -hmm. And and people showing their love, showing their hearts, helping in ways you could not even have have dreamt of asking them to do. And there's a sweetness in that. So life is life is hyphenate. It's hyphenate. So it's bitter sweet. It's always more than one thing. And understanding that gives you resilience. Uh, and it also, as I said earlier, takes away from self pity. Self pity is is the is the kiss of death. Uh, and yeah, I think self pity is one of the the. I don't know if you know about David Hawkins' scale of consciousness, but it's it. Shame and guilt and pity and all that. So that's pretty much the lowest thing we can do. And, yeah. you know, it's like, it's, it's certainly, you know, keep, keeps everybody at a low level and it does, doesn't help the collective consciousness either. No. So no. do you think, it, it seems to me like most of the people that you talk to in the book has, have like a, an internal switch. It, it didn't seem like very many people had someone from the outside helping them see things differently. I thought that was kind of interesting. It made me think that I really maybe can't help people, you know, like if they're stuck, like, can I, can I, can I actually say something like something else is also happening and, and will that help them or do they have to come to that themselves? You can absolutely say it. And, and we need to keep saying these things. That's why I write these books. That's why I teach is that we are, we, we do, we are each other's keeper. Uh, and we can, we do need to keep inspiring ourselves and other people. At the end of the day, it's our choice whether we take that inspiration or not. So it's an right. inside job. But I am so grateful for the things that people have said to me in in uh, threshold moments in my life that I would not have seen in any other way. For example, when I worked in the magazine business and I was in a very bad way in my late twenties, my life looked great from the outside, but I was miserable inside. And someone walked into my office and he took one look at me and he said, you're having a spiritual crisis. And I said, what? He said, I can see it. You're having, you're, this is a spiritual crisis. Carol, it was the first time I had thought of it in those terms. I mm. didn't have any context. I had no metaphysical context for my unhappiness. I thought it was my job. I thought it was, I was, 
some all these things wrong with me. In fact, this was this deep longing, spiritual longing that we've been talking about. And seeing it in that way was hugely empowering for me. It was very, very helpful. And had he not said it, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought it. So I Interesting. think we, so, so we do help each other. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes we uh and then there are times when it comes from within. There are times when, for example, Maria Houston, when she was in the depths of her grief over her daughter, that was a realization she had on her own. Yeah, and Byron Katie too. I mean, she got that on her own too. It was just or or it just was a download. Somehow, you know, the 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 the, the divine <laughs> came through. And I think the divine comes through us in the, those ways where we have this sudden revelation, this sudden wake up. Yeah, out of the extreme darkness. You know, Eckhart Tolle and Byron Katie have similar stories in the sense that they had both sunk to a suicidal depression and they both had these spontaneous uh, awakenings. It happened for Katie when she was in a halfway house and a cockroach crawled across her foot. And she had this moment of seeing her mind do something with what was happening. And she realized, oh, my thoughts are creating my reality. Uh, and Eckhart also had this moment when he was so depressed and, and he realized that there were two of them, two of him. He said, I can't live with myself anymore. He said, oh, are there two of me in here? Who's the I who can't live with myself? And that was his great opening. Mm-hmm. So it can come in you know, many, many different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So are you you're teaching also? You're a, you're a writer and a teacher? Yeah, I, I divide my time. Half my life is an author. Half my life is... Uh, is teaching. I have a method called writing to awaken that has come out of my my memoir writing for 35 years and my and my being a seeker. Uh, and it's about using writing for self inquiry, using writing for self uh, self realization. And so I've been teaching that for the last 12 years or so, and I love it. I, I love I love guiding people in this discovery process of the story making mind and what's beyond that. And so I teach workshops all over all over the place, and uh, it's my that's those are my those are the two hats that I wear. Yeah. So, like, is the workshop is something like somebody come there for a day, or is it something that's for a week? Or they're all all different formats. I teach uh, writing to awaken online. I do a week long retreat every year in Italy, and another one in at Hollyhock in British Columbia. Uh, I teach I teach one day workshops and weekend workshops all over. Uh, Omega Institute, Esalen, different places like okay, that. Okay. And, and so, so it's writing to awaken our ourself. I mean, it's like yeah. it's, so is it is it memoir writing or is it just not necessarily? It's it's not. It's not. Although okay. memoir writers benefit from it a lot because when you get to the deep truth of what's going on for you, that enriches your writing enormously. You don't have to be a writer to do writing to awaken. I always say if you can write an email, you can you can do this practice. <laughs> It's about asking deep questions about where does it hurt? Where am I stuck? What am I telling myself on a regular basis that isn't true? What do I desire? What do I, what, what, are, what are my deep desires? What really scares me? And so I guide people in a, in a journey of self, self discovery using, using questions, using prompts, which is nothing new. People have been doing this for thousands of years. It dates back to, you know, at least the ancient Stoics who use spiritual exercises and self-reflection and journaling to understand themselves. That's what I do in my own, my own voice. So if people come to the workshop though, they're, they're probably coming wanting to do this work, but I would think that a lot of people, a lot of people, we ask those questions, they would go, I I don't know what you're talking about. 
right? I mean, I would, don't you think? I mean, because I think I think people don't even know what they're feeling most of the time. Like yeah. if you just say, "What are you feeling now?" I've had this. I do. I do some little bit of coaching with people, and and I'll, sometimes it's like, "What what is your feeling?" And they come back with, "Well, I think he should," or "I think you know." It's like, "No, no, no." What are you feeling? And it's hard. It's hard for people to even know in this moment what I'm feeling. M- much much more those those deeper questions that you're asking. Yeah, it is. And and the good news, the good thing about writing is it is a mindfulness practice. You have to be present to do it. And so the first thing that I do is bring people into the moment because as you say, most people aren't they're not in their body. They don't know what they're feeling, yeah. no less what they're thinking. And so what the writing invites them to do is to come to the now uh, and see what is true, what is real for them uh in in that moment. And so that's the first step. And then once we get past them and they're actually in the room, we can go deeper into, into these questions. But writing has, a, has a, such a, a power of, of illumination. In fact, Joan Didion said to me, I don't even know what I think until I sit down and write. You know, mm-hmm. writing has a way of bringing us into alignment and clarifying what's going on on the inside. And so it doesn't have to be beautiful writing. What I teach isn't about making gorgeous prose. It's about getting to the heart of things. And when that happens, people people have this uh, aha that gives me a, a, a lot of joy because it it, and it goes on and on. Because you know, once you've seen certain things about yourself, you can't unsee them, and it becomes mm-hmm. an opportunity for an ongoing uh, exploration, investigation. Yeah, I mean, I think you're asking people to unplug from. The distractions of the world, you know. I mean, unplug from the phone and the TV, and and also the 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 do loop that our our thoughts are in this do loop. You know, there we think we're having all these thoughts, and but until we get them down, you know, there's something about putting them, getting them out of your head or out yes. of your heart and down on the paper that I think makes things more clear too. Oh, absolutely. That's the point is we we externalize stuff that is otherwise kind of fuzzy and, and inside us and we can't really focus. When you write it down on paper, you say, gosh, is that what I think? Yeah, is, that that what I be- is that what I believe? You know, I have a I have a community called the Seekers Forum, actually. It's similar to your podcast. And we have a weekly writing group and people who have been with me for years Well, last night, for example, a woman said, I have never thought of that before in my life. And this is a woman in her 60s. I've never realized that before in my life. That's what happens when we keep asking ourselves questions honestly, uh, and we get to get to the depth, you know, beyond the the, the PR, beyond all the, the noise in the mind. Yeah. And the idea that I've never thought of that, I've been, the question I've been asking recently is... When was my last original thought? <laughs> when was my last original thought? Because, you know, if you really look at it, we do tend to kind of gravitate to the thinking that already kind of reflects the thinking that we think. And sure. so we find our groups and we find our our news or our sound bites or our shows or whatever that kind of reflect back to us what real- we think reality is. And then, and then we may hear something interesting and then we start parroting it as if it's our thought. But it's like, Wait a minute, are any of us thinking anything original? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't I, and I always say that to, to writing students is there, there there really is nothing original. Yeah. There are basically five or six plots, you know, and we're all living out versions of what those plots are. 
and big surprise that there's, there's no tragedy in that. No. The, the ego wants to be original, but the uh, the spirit knows that we're all connected and we're all actually you know, just we're just we're, we're recycling and <laughs> re and living through one another uh, and so on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Okay, so what else should we talk about? We've we've talked about your your writing classes and some more. We can talk more about your book. You know, what do you think people should walk away with? Courage. Ah. Courage. Just courage, which of course comes from the French word for for heart. Courage, le coeur. You know, yes. courage, big heartedness, human heartedness. I think that's where our that's where the our joy comes from. It's where our strength comes from. Uh, and I want that book to help people feel courage in the face of of adversity and in the face of obstacles, and recognize that we act. We have the we're wired to adapt. We're wired to survive if we let ourselves let go of old patterns and and re, and respond in in new ways. That's where courage comes from. It comes from being equal to the task, having a sense that I don't know what's coming, but whatever whatever comes, I will be equal to it. Now, even if that means getting a a, a a diagnosis that that you're very ill and don't have long to live. We're we're wired for mortality you know the body knows how to die the mind fears it the body knows how to die and so i i think about that all the time if we can kind of get out of the way and let the animal do what the animal does it doesn't have to be a tragedy it doesn't have to be a tragedy i'm thinking of a couple of the other people in your books this one woman dr rachel Riemann. i came to the point where i decided that being ill was not going to stop me from living well what i can do is adapt that's right. That's right. What I can do is adapt. We can all pivot. <laughs> we can all adapt. And then somebody else, I think, it was Joan Didion. I've learned that thinking you should be able to control things is the worst kind of grandiosity. So yeah, that's that's the, our our need to control what's happening is what kind of keeps us stuck. And we have the courage. We have the courage to adapt. We have the courage to pivot. Courage to change, and to just meet what we need to meet. And speaking of that. Ram Das in your book said, the minute you look at a fearful thought that you've run from, it changes. Ah, I love that. It's true. It's I worked <laughs> I worked with Ram Das on, on a book about aging after he had his stroke. And he was dealing with a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty. This is someone who had spent half a century as this guru to the masses and a caregiver to the world. And suddenly he couldn't go to the bathroom by himself or, or, make, yeah. or, or feed himself. And he went through a lot of fear, a lot of resistance, a lot of, uh, of difficulty. And he realized that this, these fears were being blown up, blown out of proportion by his mind. And that if he could sit down with the fear, he said, like, I sit down and I invite them to tea. You know, instead of them being this enormous demon monster, it's the, he called them a little schmoo. You know, this little schmooze. You say, "Come here, just sit down, and let's have a cup of tea and 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 talk about this." All of a sudden, it's not they're not as as overwhelming, and that's my experience with fear. You know, fear fear uh, flourishes and multiplies through pushing it away, yeah, uh, and keeping it kind of vague. That's where fear proliferates. But when you get really clear about it, uh, most fears are, are are far more approachable and manageable than we than we believe. 
when we're when we're trying to keep them at at arm's length. But first, we have to be honest with ourselves about what the nature of our fear is, and that's another thing I do with students all the time who who are, who are talking about being bound by fear is get specific. What are you afraid of specifically? Very often, it's not what we think. It's 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 not the, for example, the disease that we're afraid of as much as losing the losing our our, our loved ones or people you know people are not having uh, not being able to you know do things we've done in the past whatever. When you get clear about what the fears are, then you can find ways of adapting creatively. But if you think that the problem is the is the for example a diagnosis, if you think that's the thing that you're most afraid of. Uh, then you're going to be victimized by it. Then you're going to be kind of held in 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 uh, paralyzed mm-hmm. by this overwhelming thing. You break it down, and it becomes a lot more manageable. And that's yeah. what Arandas did. He he learned to to deal with this this, and he lived for another eighteen years that yeah. way. Rachel Remen, who you were just talking about, she's the one who was talking who you just quoted. Um, she's the one I was saying she was told at 18 when she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease that she would be dead by the time she was 30. Meanwhile, she just turned 82 and she's the one who, when she stands up and she's on her own legs, it's a good day. Yeah. So it's really about getting past the stories that we're told about, about how, you know, how bad things are, how, how hopeless and just being with our, our real experience. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking, gosh, your last one had something. It was a, a nonagenarian, I think, and he says, "I don't wake up. I don't wake up as a nonagenarian. I wake up as a poet." <laughs> yes, Stanley Kunitz. You asked me about my favorite stories in the book. I, I think that is meeting Stanley and spending time with him was my favorite part of the book. I had never met anyone with that kind of vitality. And he was 99 when I met him, uh, and he was extraordinary. He said. He said, reinvention is my philosophy. He said, I meet, greet each day uh, as, as, a, as a bride, you know, as a kind of a, as, as a poem waiting to be. Yeah. Uh, and he, and he, yeah, he said another beautiful thing for folks who are listening, who are getting older, or those of us who are aging. <laughs> he, he said, of course, there are penalties to an old age, but I am happy to pay them. Uh, Did you hear that? Yeah. It's, it's gratitude. And yeah. he had his aches and pains. He had his illnesses and his issues. And he, this is a man who had lost a tremendous amount and he had suffered a lot in his life. But that spirit was not extinguished. The spirit was connected to his reinvention, mm-hmm. the feeling of things beginning again. And that to me is the heart of survival. It's allowing ourselves to begin again. And not feel like we're trying to get back to to the place that we left. Yeah, that's that's gone. We need to begin again. And you talk about the spirit. There was also a man named Danny. Who, I can't remember his story. I think he was homeless. And he says, without my spirit, I'd go insane. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And this was a man I met in San Francisco living on the street. Yeah. And yeah. he was lit up. He, he, you could feel the, the spirit, the, the soul in this man was tremendous. And he was a light to the people around him. To the, the, there was so much suffering and affliction around him. He was someone who who helped others uh, because he was able to to hold the light, so to speak. And yeah, hold and that it, we can all do that. This is the thing. It's like it doesn't. It, it's it is not about circumstances. It's not about having any kind of privilege or having 
having the right things, or we all know that we all know that money doesn't buy happiness, but we still think it does. But any that's just so amazing about these people. It's like the homeless guy <laughs> is yes. the light of the world. Yes, you know, yes. Yes. and 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 it's palpable. It's palpable, and it often another thing I discovered meeting all of these people is it's often people who have gone through the worst things, the worst, who are the who have the brightest light. Yeah. There's a real, there's a, a proportionality there. There's there's a connection. Yeah. Uh, and, and I I I find that paradox completely inspiring, you know, because obviously the world is is full of pain. Yes. Uh, but that's not the end of the story. Right. Yes. It's beautiful. Well, I think I think that what the the book is wonderful. I think the wisdom that you've shared with today us today is really wonderful. I think that your teaching. Uh, writing teaching sounds really, really interesting. I just think, you know, you're a light in the world. So thank oh, you for so that. So are you, Carol. Thank you. Yeah. So I just want to give you the last, if you have any last words that we haven't, I, I didn't cover anything or something that you want to talk about, anything that you want to say. I just want to say that this moment in the world is dire in many ways. There's disaster. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of loss. And there's very real dangers and real threats. It's also a moment of enormous opportunity. People are being given a chance to see through so many of the lies that we've been fed mm -hmm. about what it means to be secure, uh, being number one in the world, uh, the, the, all this propaganda, like you were saying earlier. Uh, this is a moment when that propaganda is falling apart. And while it's discomforting uh, and it can feel insecure making, it's also a moment of real uh, possibility. And real truth, there's there is a great potential for spiritual awakening today, precisely because things are so bad. And I, th I would love to encourage people to make that connection. Uh, it doesn't mean you're grateful for the bad things. I don't mean that that's Pollyanna. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. oh, I'm so glad that the you know, that global warming is happening. No, but the fact is that it is, and that gives us so much power if we look at it as as an opportunity. If we look at it as as something to be creative with. So I just want to encourage people to have heart, you know, and don't give up and go deeper, uh, let go of the things that don't matter and find the, a different way of living, you know, through that kind of courage. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, I think we're going through a birth. I think that, I think a lot of things, this may just be me, but I think a lot of institutions, a lot of things that we hold dear to, where we think has always been or needs to be or whatever, I think a lot of that is crumbling, and it's crumbling because I it needs to crumble. And we all have different thoughts about what we want to create, what we want it to look like, and probably none of that's right either. <laughs> so we really have to let go of all of it and allow this new birth of whatever we're here on this planet to do to to birth and 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 have courage, as you mentioned before, to release our hold on the way it has been. <laughs> Because that's hard to do. Yeah. So, yeah. Luckily, I think, luckily, I think, luckily life does it for us. Yeah, it <laughs> you know, does. Life, life takes, takes it away. It takes everything away. Yeah. And so it gives us the opportunity to awaken. Yes. There's, there's a reason that loss and difficulty are connected to spiritual awakening. And it's because what, what, what difficult times do is, is show you that everything can be taken away but that essence of who you are, it awakens you to something that can't be taken away. When mm -hmm. I first went on my 
spiritual journey when I thought I was dying, uh, I was looking for that. What is that? What is it in me that doesn't die? That was my question. Is there something in me that isn't subject to a disease? Something in me that transcends uh, this this physical body? Uh, and I wouldn't have gotten to that question if I hadn't had that challenge. And, and that's something that we're given in by the terms of our human lives is this 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 challenge to awaken to what's beyond the known. Yes. And what, yeah. Yes. And as you said before, meet it with curiosity and gratitude. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Mark, and thank you everyone for listening. I, I I know that there's a lot of nuggets in what we we just uh, what you just shared with us. There's somebody's going out there that's going to land on their hearts and in their their souls in a beautiful way. And I just really appreciate the inspiration that you bring as a person, as a teacher, and as an author. Thank you, Carol. It's really wonderful to have a have a deep conversation with you. It is. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much. Me too. Okay, and I now close the spiritual forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.